Please open your Bible to Exodus chapter 2. It's on page 52 if you're using the church Bible. Last week we started Exodus with the bad beginning. Public opinion in Egypt has turned against Israel. The king of Egypt has enslaved God's people and he has set himself up in the place of God trying to control creation and procreation. And chapter end. Chapter 1 ended with Pharaoh's chilling command to all his people. Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. As I read Exodus chapter 2, I want you to ask yourself, where is God in this story? Where is God in this story? I read now uh, the whole of Exodus chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of the Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. She opened it. She saw a child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call for you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince or a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. But the shepherds came and drove them away. Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. 
And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. This is God's word. Our outline this morning is, is fairly straightforward. It follows the three major blocks, although in, in a little bit out of order. Uh, God knows. God's providence is ironic. And God's providence shapes God's servants. First, God knows. God knows. When we look for God in this chapter as we read through it, initially, he is nowhere to be found. He's nowhere to be seen. God's people are enslaved and oppressed. The wicked king orders the death of the Hebrew boys. And where is God? In Moses' own life, things seem to be going well. He's well-educated, he's well-placed, he's on track for a promising career, and yet in a rash moment, he kills a man and has to flee the land. And where is God? Or we read the headlines about war crimes in Ukraine, about uh, trouble in Africa, about situations in our own land, and we wonder, where is God? In our lives, things fall apart. Relationships are broken. Our families are stressed. Perhaps our job is not going the way we thought it will, or we lose our job, or we're diagnosed with cancer, or there's a death in the family on down the list. And we wonder, where is God? Where indeed? For Moses' chapter, it looks like Israel and Moses are on their own, trying to do the best they can. But then at the very end, verses 24-25 tell us that all along, God has been there. And it forces us to rethink the whole story. It's a bit like, remember, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban? Partway through, you find out that Hermione has the time-turner, and Harry and Hermione go back, and then it's the whole story again. But now you find out Harry's the one doing the things. Uh, and sorry if this is a spoiler, guys. The movie's been out 20 years. Uh, that's on you. Uh, or uh, adults, maybe you saw the sci-fi movie Tenet, where people move backwards and forwards through time. And you see the same plot twice but from a second perspective or a mystery story when you find out who did it at the end. And then all of a sudden you rethink the whole thing and you think, oh, oh this is what was going on the whole time. At the end of Exodus uh, 2, it points to us what's been happening behind the scenes. It's not just coincidence and good fortune that's preserved Moses. God has been up to things the whole time. In the final verses, Moses is in Midian. It cuts back to Egypt and it says, during those many days, the first king had died, and the people groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help, and their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. They've reached absolute bottom. Okay, they've bottomed out. There's nothing else. They're ground down. They're oppressed. They're enslaved. A homicidal king is trying to kill their children. What can they do but cry out? 
They have nothing they can do on their own. They groaned, they cried out for help, they cried for rescue. It doesn't even say they're directly crying out to God. And yet God hears their cries. And that's the pivot in the whole book of Exodus. 400 years, uh, we don't know exactly when the slavery started, but it, you know, it's going on, at least for this king's lifetime, into the next king's lifetime. It keeps going on. And what's the turning point? Reaching rock bottom and calling out to God. And then verses 24 and 25 follow with these simple words. God heard, God remembered, God saw, God knew. In modern English, uh, these kinds of verbs tend to be pretty passive. You know, sounds come into my ears and I hear, uh, light hits my eyes and I see, memories pop up from who knows where and I remember things. But in the Bible, these words are used in an active sense. It's about actively engaging the world. God heard their groanings. It's not just a sound in the background. It's, it's God listened to their groanings. He took notice of their cries. He sat up and paid attention. God remembered his covenant as if he needs to be remembered or reminded what he committed to do. But when he remembers, it, 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 it's calling to mind the promises he's made in preparation for action. So God's gathering himself up to do something to act on his promise. Remember his promise we looked at last week, don't be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you a great nation, and I myself will go down with you, and I will bring you up again. God saw the people of Israel. He paid attention to them. He saw their situation, their need, and then the chapter ends somewhat mysteriously, God knew. It looks as if God had forgotten his people, He's oblivious to their plight, and yet at the end of the chapter, we see what's really going on. God hears, God remembers, God sees, God knows. The whole time, God has been orchestrating things, preparing uh, the beginnings of his plan to rescue his people. Throughout this chapter, as we look back through it in a moment, we see some characters see, some characters hear, some characters try to know, but it's only God at the end who sees, remembers, hears, and knows. He does it all, and so he can fully deliver. What we're talking about here is what's called the doctrine of providence. The Westminster Shorter Catechism calls it God's most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving, and governing of all his creatures and all their actions. That is to say, God's hand is often hidden but it is always there guiding the course of events. Uh, this word providence that we use to describe this doctrine is a Latin word or from a Latin root that translates in Genesis 22 when Isaac asks Abraham, you know, we have the wood, we have the fire, but where is the sacrifice? And Abraham says, God will see for himself a lamb. That word see for himself, he will see to it. That's providio, he will see where we get the word providence. Christians believe in God's providence, that God is guiding all things, but that doesn't mean it's simply self-evident when we look at the world round about us. Uh, in fact, we find ourselves often in situations we cannot understand, faced with questions we cannot answer in the moment, circumstances that even make us angry with God. But in the midst of those sorts of situations, Trust in God's unseen providence gives us hope and strength. 
Paul tells us that in all things, God is at work for the good of those who love him. But we only see that good in retrospect. As in Exodus 2, only at the end of the chapter do you see God has been at work all along. So it is in our life. At the end of the chapter, at the end of a season, we see that God has been at work. We realize he's been there the whole time. Even if we don't know what God is doing in the exact moment, in the midst of the situation, we can trust that God is at work for the good of those who love him. Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also give us all things with him? His argument is if, if God went to the great lengths of giving his own son for your good, you can trust that he is at work in all things for your good. Indeed, uh, providence as a whole, it's not just coincidence that it comes from this text, Genesis 22, saying God will see for himself a lamb. God will provide for himself a lamb. And in a sense, that's the center point of all of history, all of providence. That's what Paul's saying. God has provided for himself a lamb, his own son. And if that's how God guides history, you can trust God. So whatever your situation this morning, note these words of hope. God hears, God remembers, God sees, God knows. Well, the end of the chapter clues us in to what's been going on behind the scenes. God's been at work in all these things for the good of his people. Now let's go back and look for God's providence in these earlier stories, how God has been providing for his people. First, I want to look at verses 1 through 10 and see that God's providence is ironic. God's providence is ironic. That is to say, it works in ways that are opposite of what we might expect, that are surprising, and in some ways even humorous, despite the dark backdrop of these stories. Pharaoh has ordered the death of the newborn sons, and yet it is the daughters who undermine his plan. After Pharaoh's command for the whole land at the end of chapter 1, chapter 2 begins by focusing in on one family. Uh, initially, no one is given names. It could be any Israelite family. They're faced with these circumstances, and they try to protect their baby. A Levite man takes a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Uh, you might recall at the end, in Genesis 1, at the end of every act of creation, it says, and God saw that it was good. It's the same phrase that's used here. She bore the son and she saw that he was good. Like the good creator, she sees her child and delights in her child. As an aside, this is an important reminder for parents. There's lots to worry about when you have children. Uh, you know, are they going to be safe? Are they making good decisions? Are they going to turn out okay? There's lots to worry about, but our fundamental disposition should be delighting in our children. Like this mother, seeing that our children are fine children, that they're God's good gift. Well, the mother saw her baby and so takes action to protect him from Pharaoh. And she foreshadows then God who will see his people and take action to protect them from Pharaoh. 
She can hide the baby initially for the first three months. Uh, we found at least that it's easier to take a two or three month old to the movies than to take a one or two year old to the movies. Uh, they're small. Uh, you can quiet them down by nursing if you need to. Uh, and, and so he's able to hide, or she's able to hide him for the first couple months. But by three months, he's too old to hide in the house. Or maybe it's time for the scheduled sweep when the uh, uh, Egyptian soldiers come through and make sure there's no baby boys. So what does she do? She takes a basket of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She seals up this piece of furniture they have around the house, a sort of chest. This word basket, it's an Egyptian loan word that can refer to baskets or chests or even a, a coffin. Uh, but in the Bible, this word is used only here and in the story of Noah's Ark. It's the same word for ark. Uh, our Bibles get us a little confused because we call the box of the covenant the Ark of the Covenant. But actually in Exodus, it's the box that Moses is put in that's the Ark. And the box of the covenant, I guess that just doesn't sound quite as, it doesn't roll off the tongue like Ark of the Covenant, does it? But uh, uh, it, So it's used for Noah and here. And this mother, like Noah, who builds an Ark to save his family and to preserve life, this woman builds a mini Ark to save her family, to preserve life. And you see some of the irony here. Moses' mother obeys the exact letter of Pharaoh's law, but certainly not its spirit. She places the baby in this little ark and then puts him in the Nile, just like Pharaoh has commanded. And I gather the plan is, uh, you know, during the day maybe when the soldiers are around, he'll be hidden in the Nile. If they hear crying from the river, that's to be expected given Pharaoh's orders. Uh, and then at night, maybe they can go get the baby and bring him back home. She puts the child in the river, and she, uh, the, the sister, Moses' sister, who's maybe eight or nine years old, stands at a distance to see what would happen, to literally know what would happen to him. Again, that's one of those verbs that God uses at the end. She foreshadows God's action. Well, what does happen? Again, we see the irony of God's providence. Who should come down to the river but Pharaoh's own daughter? to swim in the river, to bathe in the river. And her servants are walking along the seashore. And she notices in the reeds, I guess you can only see it from the riverside, this basket. And when uh, she has one of her servants get the basket and bring it over. And when she opens it, she saw the child. Again, that's the same word. God saw his people. She sees the child. And behold, the baby was crying and she took pity on him. She has compassion on him. Again, it's foreshadowing God himself who sees his people and has pity. But all that she says is, this is one of the Hebrews' children. That's what the sister hears. Okay, that could mean, so chuck him in the river like my dad said. Uh, it could mean it's just an observation. We know from the narrator what he tells us that she sees the child and is filled with compassion. But Moses' sister boldly takes a risk and suggests, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women to nurse the child? The Pharaoh's daughter had compassion, but she doesn't yet have a plan to adopt the daughter. But the sister sort of suge helpfully suggests this whole course of action. And it sounds good. So she goes and she summons Moses' own mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to the Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. 
She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Do you see the irony here? Pharaoh tries to kill the baby boys. And now Pharaoh himself is paying for Moses' mother to go on maternity leave and raise him and nurse him and care for him. Pharaoh's trying to get rid of these Israelite boys, and yet one is brought into his own house. And uh, Pharaoh's own daughter adopts him, giving him this name Moses, which it's a, it's a double play on words. Uh, it's an Egyptian word that means son, and so you have these Egyptian kings named things like uh, Tutmos. Uh, it has that same word Moses at the end. But it's also a Hebrew word that sounds like the verb to draw out. And that name, it's, it's a little bit significant of Moses' double background, that he's both an Israelite and an Egyptian, as it were. So we see in, these opening, in this opening story uh, that like in Judo, God's ironic providence ends up using the Pharaoh's own strength against him, flips Pharaoh on his back. When Paul says that God is at work in all things for the good of those who love him, this is the sort of thing he's talking about. God is at work for the good of his people, and that same God is still at work today. God preserves Moses through his ironic providence, but then as we proceed to the next section, the middle section of this chapter, we see a final truth, that God's providence shapes his servants. God's providence shapes his servants. Moses is provided with a double education. In the early years of his life, he's brought up by his own family. He's taught the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's taught the covenant promises of God, the hope of Israel. But then at some point, probably between 5 and 10, Moses is adopted by the Pharaoh's daughter, and he's raised in the Egyptian court. And in Acts chapter 7, Stephen draws out the obvious implication that he learned all the wisdom of Egypt. He was trained like the Pharaoh's other uh, uh, people in his court. To become the kind of person who can lead God's people and record God's law and teach God's law to God's people, Moses needs more training than brick making and slave labor can provide. And who provides it for him? Pharaoh himself. Uh, it's interesting we know from uh, uh, documents that archaeologists have found that Tutmos III, who was Pharaoh right around the time of Moses, actually records that he had this policy where he would take children from chieftains and kings of the surrounding lands, and he would hold them sort of as hostages and train them in what he called his nursery, so that when their fathers died and they went to rule in their own lands, they would be civilized according to Egyptian standards. And they would understand Egyptian culture and laws, and most importantly, they would submit to the Pharaoh's rule. And so it seems entirely plausible that Moses is plugged into this training program along with these other youngsters from round about the ancient Near Eastern world. Then in verse 11, the story jumps ahead to Moses as an adult. One day, he's grown up, and we see his providentially shaped character. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and he looked on their burdens. And when it says his people, it's literally his brothers. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brothers. Moses isn't satisfied with the luxuries of court life. Okay, he could stay in the palace and not really worry about all the abuse that's going on on the outside, all the injustice out there. But that's not in his character. He goes out firsthand to see the injustice and oppression, and he doesn't look away. He looks squarely at it. 
It's a hard thing to do, to look at people who are being oppressed, who are subject to unjust uh, 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 laws, who are being hurt, and just, just to see them. But like God, Moses sees his people in their suffering. He sees their need for a redeemer, someone to deliver them. And Moses is a man of action. It says he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. It's not clear. It looks this way and that. Is he looking for someone to intervene? Or is he sort of covering to make sure no one's going to see what he does? It doesn't make it clear. I guess you could read it either way. Uh, but it seems like Moses is only looking for other humans. He forgets to look and see what God is doing in this situation. He doesn't factor God into the equation. Uh, but what's important to notice is that Moses uses equivalent force here. Uh, the same verb is used uh, in, in both verses. This uh, guard is, or, or taskmaster is beating the Hebrew, hitting the Hebrew, and so Moses hits the Egyptian. Okay, it's equivalent force, and it's not even clear that he means to kill the guy. Maybe he just hits him and he falls over and bangs his head, something like that. But what happens is he dies, and so Moses hides the body and then goes back to the palace. And the next day, we're told, then he goes out from the palace again, and he sees two Hebrews fighting. But now, instead of trying to physically intervene, he tries to use his words. He attempts to break up the fight, but it's not well received. The guy in the wrong turns on him. And in, at least in my family growing up, we would have said it like this. Who died and made you sheriff? You know, are you going to kill me like you killed this Egyptian? And now Moses realizes that his crime has not been hidden. He's afraid. Moses, or uh, Pharaoh hears like God hears. And Pharaoh is meant to enforce justice. Of course, he's not doing that. And when Pharaoh hears, he seeks to kill Moses. So Moses flees to Midian. But let's pause for a moment. We see Moses' character that has been shaped by God's providence. God has put Moses into Pharaoh's household. Now God is getting Moses out of Egypt, separating him from the Pharaoh and his household, leading him into the wilderness where he will learn to use his strength to tend sheep, where he will encounter God at the burning bush. But we see even in these early episodes, Moses has a, a, a strong sense of justice. He sees oppression and injustice and he can't just stand by. But we also see that his clobber the bad guy pro uh, uh, approach to injustice doesn't actually deliver Israel. If anything, it probably makes things worse for them. Okay, now that they hear a Hebrew has killed an Egyptian, probably the taskmasters are going to be more brutal than ever. So we see good things in Moses' character and yet he's a man of action and a bit rash. Moses flees to Midian and he sits by a well and the well is a bit like at the community center in the ancient uh, uh, desert area. It's where everybody comes to get water for their flocks and to meet up and the roads all crisscross and intersect at the wells. And while he's sitting by this well, seven daughters of the Midianite priest come out to draw the water and they fill the troughs. But then a bunch of local shepherds and, and sorry if this is offensive, they roll up in their lifted diesel uh, chariots and their kind of buttheads and drive these girls away. And, and take the water for their own sheep. But again, Moses is not one to sit by and watch this sort of behavior. We're told he stood up and saved them. 
And then uh, uh, to just finish out the story, Moses ends up marrying one of the daughters. There's a bit of humor there. Uh, they come back and the father's saying, well, what's going on? And so, well, this, this guy helped us out. And you can see the shepherds aren't really marriageable material that are round about. And the father's got seven daughters to marry off. So he's like, well, why did you leave him at the well? Get him back here. Let's have him for dinner. Let's see what this guy's like. And then uh, uh, Moses, of course, ends up marrying Zipporah. And they have a child and he names him Gershom, which means sojourner there. I was a sojourner in Egypt. I'm not really an Egyptian. I'm a sojourner here. I'm a wanderer. But we see Moses' action here at the well is effective in delivering these young women. In Egypt, Moses comes out from the palace. He's in a position of authority and power and privilege, and he tries to force justice into that situation from the outside. And although God uses it to get Moses out of Egypt, initially, uh, it, it seems like it cost him nothing. Okay? Probably the Pharaoh and his household can kill people and get away with it. Okay, it's not really that big of a deal. But now at the well, Moses is no longer in a position of power. And indeed, he's putting himself at great risk. Uh, We're not told how many shepherds there were driving these girls away, but it's plural. There's multiple shepherds. Moses is one guy on the run and he stands up to them. He's in the middle of the situation. It's potentially costly. He risks his own life, and in the middle of it, when it's going to cost him something, now he's able to effectively deliver people in need. That's an important lesson to learn. Now, as we look at this chapter as a whole, as we conclude here, we see that like Israel, we all need to be delivered. Okay, we face various sorts of difficulty, oppression. Uh, in, uh, in the New Testament, it uses the language of bondage to describe our own sinful patterns of behavior that we're locked into. We need to be delivered, but we also need to be shaped. Uh, C.S. Lewis has this essay called The Problem with X, and in the essay, he says, you know, you say the problem with X, such and such a person, is they always do this and they always do that, and I've tried to tell them about it 50 times, and they never change. Because, you know, when you just tell someone you're kind of a jerk, it usually doesn't, like, get them to quit being a jerk immediately. That, you need to be shown it. But what Lewis goes on to say is, whenever you're saying, you know, there's a problem with such and such a person, you know, someone else is saying that about you, okay? Someone may be oppressing you, treating you wrongly, and you need delivered, but we all also are oppressing, deli- uh, 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 hurting, being unjust towards other people, and they need delivered from us. In the terms of Exodus 2, we're all both the Hebrew who's getting beaten, but in other areas of life, we're the Egyptian who's doing the beating. We're not just the good guys, we're the good guy and the bad guy. We need delivered, and people need delivered from us. We need a deliverer who doesn't just come from the outside, from a position of power, and tries to put things right. Uh, After all, if we're all the Egyptian as well as the Hebrew, uh, and and, and someone just comes from the outside and strikes us down, that's not really good for us, is it? Uh, We're buried in the sand, and that's the end of the matter. But we need someone who enters the situation like Moses by the well, who comes from the inside, who's willing to risk their own lives to deliver us. God's providence, as we've seen, is at work in all things to rescue his people, to provide for himself a lamb. And so Matthew tells that story, the center of that story of God's providence. God's own son gives up power and privilege and his position and goes out from the palace of heaven and comes into our broken world to see our burden firsthand. And Matthew tells us that as a baby, his life too is threatened by a homicidal tyrant who again is threatened by God's plan to deliver. 
and to bless the world. And so that baby, baby Jesus, is protected in Egypt, just like Moses. He has to live away from his home. But then to deliver his people, Jesus lets himself be beaten and struck down by the oppressors. And only by ultimately giving his own life as the lamb God has seen for himself does Jesus deliver his people. And so we can't divorce providence, our trust that God shapes and guides all things from the cross, the center point of that whole plan, what everything is leading to. We can trust that God is at work in all things because we see the center point. It's God's self-giving love in Christ Jesus. And that's the foundation for our hope, that if God is taking this burden on himself, he's giving himself as the spotless lamb to make all things right, then we know things will turn out for our good in the end. As we sing at Christmas, in his name, one day all oppression shall cease. That's the kind of deliverer we need. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you hear our cries. You know when we are helpless. You remember your covenant promises given to us in Christ Jesus. You see our need even more clearly than we do ourselves. You see that we both need to be delivered and that we need to be shaped by your providence to be people who uh, live rightly rather than hurting those around us. And we thank you, Lord, that you did not turn away from us, but you know us. And so you entered into our world, you saw firsthand, you experienced firsthand our pain and our suffering, and indeed you gave yourself as a lamb so that we might be free, so that the course of history might be set aright. And so, Lord, we trust that you are at work in all things for the good of those who love you. Amen.